what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. I tell our story because it's important for people to hear the reality of what's happening to people because of these choices that drivers are making behind the wheel. But I want them to learn from it and have a takeaway that they understand, you know what, this is way too risky. And just because my car has Bluetooth, just because my car has a button I can hit on the steering wheel to have a conversation, does that mean I should do it? Is it really that important? I told myself and my husband, you know what, this is our story, but it's more than about us. It's more than about Erica. And we were willing to open our hearts about that because of the potential of who could learn from it, who could maybe be saved from sharing our pain because it was 100% preventable. It doesn't particularly get easier to tell this story. But I became a speaker because people need to know that that choice, that decision can impact someone's life for, for the rest of their life. Well, I want to welcome everyone to the uh, Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson, the executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. We're a nonprofit that targets traffic safety education. Our mission is simply to help make streets safer for all who walk, cycle, play, drive, and ride. Today, our uh, guest is Shelly Forney. First and foremost, she's a mom, she's a wife, and she's from Fort Collins, Colorado. And she's going to share her own story of her journey and the story of her daughter, Erica. And so, uh, Shelly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, I always like to start out with just a, a little connection about how we got connected in the first place. I, I think that if my memory serves me right or serves me wrong, that it probably was through Rob Reynolds. That would be correct. It was. Because uh, you share similar stories in a way with your daughters and uh, our listeners may Remember that Rob and Sherry were on our podcast probably about a year ago, uh, sharing about their daughter, Katie, and uh, her experience. And so I know a lot of advocates that are addressing issues surrounding distracted driving have connected with each other around the country. And so Rob was able to connect us as well. Shelly, I'd like to invite you to share your story about the kind of service that you've been providing for corporations, for organizations around the country. But first and foremost, share about Erica to tell us her story and your story. You bet. As you said, I am um, a mother of three. I have three daughters. Jessica's my oldest, Erica, my middle daughter, and then my youngest, Valerie. And um, a full-time mom and wife. In fact, my husband and I just had our 30th anniversary in March. Pretty proud of that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, life is good. I'm going to jump back 12 and a half years to tell you how it was that I have a story to be shared. A lot of us wish we didn't, but life throws us throws us all curveballs that we don't expect and don't see them coming. Um, my middle daughter, Erica, at the time, the year's 2008. She was nine years old and she was in fourth grade. She was a happy, bubbly kid. One of the kind of things I, I used to say is she was the jokester of the family. She was the comedian. She was the happy, bubbly, fun kid. She'd do anything to make you laugh. Um, loved to tell knock-knock jokes. She was very tight with her older sister, Jessica. They were just under three years apart. And then uh, Erica was my middle daughter. At the time, Jessica was 12 in 2008, Erica was nine, and my youngest, Valerie, was at just three and a half. There's a little bit of a gap between her and her and Erica in age. She loved being the middle child. She absolutely adored her, loved her, her younger sister. Her older sister, Jessica, and her were two peas in a pod, finished each other's sentences. They were pretty inseparable, but the three of them made a good team. And, um, you know, our, our little family of five was just chugging along, doing well. We, we're going to jump now to a, a day in um, November. The, the date was November 25th, and it was the last day before Thanksgiving break. And Erica had just started uh, fourth grade at a brand new elementary school that opened just a few blocks from my house, about four blocks south of my home. And uh, went to school, and uh, they were doing all kinds of Thanksgiving activities. And I was told she'd had a fantastic day. She rode her bicycle to school. 
And I've always taught my kids, you know, once they started riding their bikes, okay, I, you know, the best thing you could do when you ride your bike to school, obviously wear a helmet and ride on the sidewalk. So that you're the furthest from the road, but a lot of times there's people walking on the sidewalk. So if you don't have that option, then ride on in the bike lane. And in, on our street, uh, on both sides of our street, the, the city is great about, you know, keeping up the paint. And there was bike, bike lanes on both sides of the street. And, and I learned that as a bicyclist or a pedestrian or a roller skater, you know, those bike lanes are for you. And if you're going to be needing to, to ride in them in either direction, that's what they're there for solely for, for people to use, you know, for their bikes or their rollerblades or whatever they're doing. So she rode to school on that day on her bicycle and had a great, great last day of school before the Thanksgiving break. She hopped on her bike to head home. And um, at the time, I, maybe even more people came than normal to, to bring their kids back home from school that day as it was the last day before the break. So the, the sidewalks were pretty full. So she was not able to uh, ride on the sidewalk. And so she she ended up riding in the, the bike lane and she was heading towards traffic and traffic was coming towards her. So so technically she would be on the wrong side of the street. But as I said, you know, the, the technicality of uh, for those lanes is they are either direction you're going in. There's really no wrong side of the street that you can be on as long as you're in that lane, which she was. So she was heading towards traffic and um, heading home, and she literally got within two blocks of my home. She got within two blocks of our of our house when she saw a neighbor across the street. A friend of ours was walking his daughter home, and they lived about a block up from us and, and downhill. And uh, he saw her, and his name was Kevin, and stopped her on her way, and he waved at her from across the street and said, well, happy Thanksgiving, Erica. And on, Kevin and his daughter went to go down the hill, and he literally only took a few steps when he heard a very large crash happen behind him. So as he turned around to see what had happened, he saw my daughter had been hit. As I said, my daughter was literally around the corner from our house at that point. And uh, he ran over to my home to alert my family as to what had happened. While this was transpiring, I was not home. I had been off at a doctor's appointment. I have to derail for a moment and um, explain to you where I was and what I was doing. It is, it is pertinent to my story. I had been multitasking two months before. Uh, I had Valerie in my little umbrella stroller. I had my golden retriever. We were out going for a run, just like I did this morning. And I was coming down the hill and, and saw a rock on the sidewalk and I went to try to go around it, but instead it jarred in the umbrella stroller and down my daughter was flying towards the concrete. And I was able to catch her, but in the process of pulling her up, I rolled my ankle and broke it. So I'd been wearing those walking boots for two months, and I was thrilled that I had an appointment that afternoon to, to find out that it all healed up. But I, the, the doctor wanted me to keep the boot on just through the holiday weekend, and then I was going to be able to be done with it. So I hopped in my minivan, put my little baby in there, and my three-year-old, and um, headed home. And in 2008, we were all just in the midst of the beginning of Bluetooth and how wonderful we were told it was, and how great it is to have hands-free driving. And so I, along with my spouse and pretty much about every household in America, you know, we purchased a couple of those and we used them often. And I was making phone calls to my family in my car to tell them, oh, well, I've got this great news, you know, I'm all healed up, now I get to get this thing off, I'm so excited. I, I guess I could say I'm an, kind of an impatient person. I should have waited till I got home to decide to make those phone calls, but because society had told me, hey, use this Bluetooth. This is a safe thing. You get to keep your hands on the wheel and, and talk to people and it won't derail your focus at all. I went ahead and did it. So I was coming into my neighborhood. I had made two phone calls and uh, my way home. And what's interesting about this drive on the way home is that I was completely oblivious to what road I was on, really what speed I was going, where I even was. Uh, by the time I realized I pulled into my neighborhood, I had that whole epiphany thought of, how did I get here? And I was talking to my father and that kind of like light bulb went off in my head. Like I, I came in a whole nother way to my neighborhood. I came in a long route. This took me like 10 minutes longer. Why did I come this way? This doesn't make any sense. Why would I take a long route? And because I was so focused on my phone call that I couldn't pay attention enough. I was on autopilot, right? I was driving on autopilot because my brain was focused on the conversation with my dad. So Somehow I made it home and I was finishing my conversation with him and I was pulling into uh, the, the end of my, my through street in front of my house. 
And I could see at the other end of the street where my home was, my neighbor was looking for me and frantically waving me up. So as I got closer, I parked my minivan and popped out and she was ushering me to the middle of all this chaos that was happening right on the other side of where my house was out on a road called Avondale is the main road that runs to and from everywhere in my neighborhood. And uh, that's where Erica's school was, was, was on the other side of Avondale, the other end of it. So my neighbor rushed me into the middle of all this chaos. I had no clue what was going on. My husband was there. Kevin was there. The principal of the school. There were students, teachers, neighbors. A bus full of kids came by right at that moment. You know, there was paramedics and fire trucks. This woman uh, saw me on the side on the sidewalk and shouted out to me. I can't believe I didn't see her. And of course, I didn't know what she was talking about. Why was she shouting this to me? As I got closer, I could see my daughter and the paramedics were cutting her clothes off. They don't waste any time. They have these huge scissors from from her ankle all the way up. They don't, you know, they don't waste their time. And she was lying there still. It was like she was knocked out, right? So I figured it out. Okay, my daughter's been hit. And again, this woman shouts out to me. I cannot believe I didn't see her. You know, I could see she was panicking. I went over and I hugged her. And I said, it's going to be okay. Three times I hugged this woman. Three times in that five minutes, I kept going over there to console her, to tell her, my daughter's strong. She's going to be okay. You know, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what all happened, but I figured it out. They rushed my daughter off to the local um, hospital. I was in one ambulance. She was in another. They kept my husband behind to fill out paperwork. I wish they had never done that. They shouldn't have. He should have came with me. I was waiting in a, uh, you know, a room all by myself with no one else and nobody giving me any updates. After 45 minutes of panic and calling family saying my daughter's been struck. I don't know, you know, what's happening. I don't, I don't know how she is. I I just came out of that room. I went to the other end and I saw these women, these nurses standing in front of a room. And I said, I think my daughter is in there. My daughter, Erica, is she in there? And they said, yes, but you can't, I'm sorry, you can't see her right now. And I said, I don't care. I'm her mom. And I just pushed them out of the way and I went in. When I went in there, there were six doctors with her, six doctors. And they said to me, Miss Forney, Erica is, she is in bad shape. And we need to fight for life her to Children's Hospital in Denver. When that happened, my my, my neighbor brought my husband at that moment. And um, I went up to my daughter. And even though she hadn't moved this whole time, I said, Mama's here. Honey, you're going to be okay. And she moved. And they said, it's just her muscles reacting. I'm like, her muscles reacting? My, my daughter knows I'm here with her. They put her in the helicopter. And of course, there's no room for anyone but the paramedics and uh, the patient. And our friend drove us that hour and a half drive to Children's Hospital in Denver. When we got there, we found our daughter with these, this bolt in her head to relieve the pressure from the impact of, of what had happened to her. And I'm going to tell you now what actually happened to my daughter at that point. Kevin was the last one to speak to her alive. When he turned to go down the hill after he, he stopped and waved at her and she waved back to him. A neighbor of ours that we did not know, who lived two blocks south of us on Evandale Road, was on her way home from work and uh, chose to make a phone call in her car. As she chose to make this call coming into our neighborhood, um, she was distracted and had uh, was looking for something in her seat. That's what I was. That's what I was told when her vehicle, uh, which was a um, you know six to eight thousand pound SUV, Ford Expedition SUV, drifted off Avondale Road into the bike lane where my daughter was. She hit her head on at twenty five miles an hour, which is the posted speed limit in our neighborhood. And my little daughter's body hit that windshield. She cracked it clear across. And she flew backwards and landed 15 feet in the other direction as she flipped and did a backflip off of her bike. She broke her brainstem when she landed on the concrete. And she did not have her helmet on that day. As we prayed and struggled to find answers, for two days, and the pressure in her head grew. And within 12 hours, the pressure number was beyond anything incomprehensible. 
in anything that was possible that um, she could survive from. She died on Thanksgiving Day. Two days later, from this 100% preventable car crash. All because a driver chose to make a call at 3.38 on November 25th. My daughter was nine years old and three months to the day. And she had her life taken from her in a blink of one eye. We had to bury our baby. And it's been 12 and a half years. And as you can tell, it doesn't particularly get easier to tell this story. But I became a speaker because people need to know that that choice, that decision can impact someone's life for, for the rest of their life. Can you talk about what led you to the decision to become a, a speaker about distracted driving? How did that unfold? We had a lot of media coverage and interest in our story. When it got out that the drivers, the sole reason that we lost our daughter was because of this phone conversation that she chose to have at that moment on that day. And um, the media was literally at our home within three days of her crash of, of us coming back from the hospital. It kind of snowballed for us. Well, what was it like encountering the media just three days after, you know, this incident with Erica? It was very hard. Um, I'm, a, I'm an outgoing person. I, I don't have a problem talking to people, but I've always had a fear of speaking in front of people, as that's one of a lot of people's fears is um, public speaking in any, any way, right? But to have, you know, television come to you and radio come to you and, and uh, you name it. We were requested to, to do a whole lot of all of that <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, it was obviously it was a bit invasive, but I think I told myself um, and my husband, both of us felt like, you know what, this is our story, but it, it's more than about us. And it's more than about Erica. And we were willing to open our hearts about that because of the potential of, of who could who could learn from it, who could maybe be saved from sharing our pain and sharing what we had been through because it was 100% preventable. Um, I think we both saw the benefit, our, our whole family, even my children. Um, you know, we were in various TV shows and radio shows and, and then a, a lot of uh, local shows as well. It, it really kind of took off. And um, as hard as it's been, um, I've gone down and many times to the state capitol in Denver and to Washington, D.C., to try to talk to people about the importance of putting laws in place that would prevent this from happening, hopefully prevent this from happening. I've done, done everything I, I can and continue to, to try to promote awareness. It's truly about awareness because, you know, I think the one thing when I, when I come and speak for people in businesses and schools and, and um, government agencies and I do a lot of school bus driver training. The one thing that that I share with people is, and the reason I tell the story about where I was and what I was doing, I think I didn't I didn't really give an answer to why I shared with you during my story where I was and what I was doing when my daughter's crash happening. I stopped using my phone that day in the car. That was the last day I used my Bluetooth. And the reason I shared that is to say that I was just like everybody else. We were just like everybody else. We're no different. We used our phones in our car too. You know, and it's understandable. There's a there's an attraction to going, okay, well, I'd like to be able to talk to people and drive at the same time. Wouldn't that be nice if I can do both those things at the same time? I think, I I mean, I get the appeal of that because that was us too. And that was the last day I've ever, my Bluetooth has been dead for 12 and a half years, same as my husband. You know, we will never, ever, ever use our phones in our car again, ever. There's too much of a risk. And that's why I tell that story because I think it's important people to know, for people to know you know, we're, we're just like everyone else. We, we, we felt the same way, right? But, um, you know, all that, the media and the radio interviews and the TV interviews, we did it because um, it's not about us. 
It's not even about, it's not even about Erica. It's about awareness. It's about saying, you know what? Your choices, your decisions impact everyone around you. Everyone. When The second you walk out that door and put that key in the ignition and turn it, no, it's no longer about you. It's about all the people around you because they're going to be impacted by all the choices and decisions you make behind the wheel. Because you're not by yourself anymore. You have you have all these people around you, in front of you, behind you, beside you, on the sidewalks, right? That are going to be impacted by your choices and decisions. So you need to be making your choices and decisions in your vehicles, on your bicycles. People are riding their bikes and texting and riding their bikes and having Bluetooth conversations. Guess what? That's just as dangerous. They could run into a car and get killed. They could hurt somebody else because it, it's anything on wheels, right? If you're on wheels and you're out in the public, and you're texting, and you're on your phone, you're putting everyone at risk, including yourself. So it, it, it's, it's snowballed. This, this problem of distracted driving, distracted riding is, is get gotten out of control. And uh, all this technology is not helping us. It's hindering us. When you consider the technology, and it may be research-based, you know, it may be experience-based, it may be both, in terms of what you've learned happens when somebody's on a cellular device, whether uh, even if it's hands-free, what happens to us when we're trying to drive? You bet. So I ended up starting to speak because I got into all this and learned so much about the brain and what happens to your brain. I ended up doing quite a bit of uh, various presentations with um, David Strayer. He's one of the cognitive neuroscientists out there and a couple of other cognitive neuroscientists in the United States that are well-known for sharing their research on this. And what I learned from them, and I share this in my presentations with people, as well as our story, because it's more about sharing our story. It's about educating people about what's happening to your brain. And let's break this down and explain it, right? I wanna know, I wanna know why you're telling me that Bluetooth is bad. Okay, give me some Give me some proof, give me some data, give me some, some explanation, right? And that's a great thing to ask. People should ask that question. So what happens, David Strayer, look him up. He is a phenomenal neuroscientist, that uh, cognitive neuroscientist that just has really spent a lot of time and energy researching what happens to our brains. He did tests on test subjects, had them get in a vehicle on a track and you know put cones out and asked them to go ahead and start driving. And then they paid attention. He watched and, and, and looked to see what part of their brain was engaging and disengaging when they were asked to make a text or do a Bluetooth conversation. And then he's got data on both those things. So truly, honestly, it really isn't much different. Your brain is cognitively distracted by either of those conversations. What happens is there's this myth out there that we can all multitask. Okay. There might be in some respects that you can multitask, say, around your house. But once you get in your vehicle, it's a totally different game that we're playing with our brain. You're asking your brain to try to do two tasks simultaneously that both require 100% attention. Our brain is not wired to be able to do two tasks with 100% attention simultaneously. It's physically impossible for our brain to actually do that. And that's what David Strayer taught me. He says your brain has to, to, to toggle task. So you have the task on one hand of driving and the task of the conversation on the other hand. Your brain has to choose between the two and it's shifting back and forth between what it's focused on. Does that make sense? It does. And, and you think you're so, oh, I do that all the time. But you actually, you're not. You're actually, um, you're trying to shift and your brain's trying to shift as fast as humanly possible between the, the task of that conversation. And it doesn't matter if it's a person sitting next to you that you're talking to or a person on the other end of a phone conversation that's that's not in the car with you. Your brain is still cognitively distracted. A, a passenger, the only difference is a passenger next to you is in the car so they can see potential danger and tell you, hey, you're going to run that light. Hey, you're going to hit that person, right? So your risk still goes up by four times simply having a passenger in the car and any additional passengers, your risk will go up as the driver, right? So that's not good. And it's important to be aware of that. But there are more eyes to see danger, whereas the person on the other end of that phone conversation can't help you if um, you're having a conversation with them and you're about to hit somebody or go through a light or something. So I always like to clarify that. But you're asking your brain to toggle task, and it cannot physically do those two tasks at the same time. So you have to choose between the two, even though you don't cognitively realize that that's actually what you're doing. But that is what the brain is, is being forced to do. And that's why it's such a challenge. Yeah, I know for myself that you know, when I had read some of the early research on 
the whole loss of the spatial field, not being able to use my peripheral vision and the slower reaction time where somebody would be like somebody 0.09 under the influence if they're on a cellular device and operating a vehicle, that those got me not only thinking, but uh, as a runner, I actually was out running home one day. I, my uh, daughter, I gave her the car for the day when she went to school and I just ran home from her school. And, but I was running along a busy street uh, here in Omaha where we're based during what is oxymoronically called rush hour since people weren't moving very fast. But the thing that I did while I was running along this busy street was notice people who are on cellular devices. And every time I saw somebody on a cellular device, I'd kind of run out on the easement, which is the area between the curb and the sidewalk. And, but I would just go out and I would wave at them. I, and I waved at about 30 different drivers on my, my way home. And I always like to ask people, well, you know, how many drivers do you think noticed that I waved at them? You know, because you probably know the answer because it was zero. I mean, everybody was so focused on looking straight ahead yep. that they had no idea that I was there. And for me, you know, it was a little experiment on, on my own part that I don't think put anybody else in danger. And I certainly wasn't looking to put myself in danger, but it, it just confirmed for me that people were literally in another world you know, when they were yeah. on their cellular devices. And then the other example that I always like to give, especially when I'm uh, doing a presentation with teenagers, is to ask them, how many of you have been to a football game, which most of them have been to a football game? I said, you know, what if the uh, quarterback started talking on a hands-free device while running a play? You know, would that be acceptable? What would happen? You know, people would be up in arms about all of that. And I said, but what's the worst that could happen? You know, the quarterback gets sacked, throws an interception, fumbles, the play blows up in some way, shape, or form, but the quarterback's still alive. When you're operating your vehicle, you are the quarterback of that vehicle. And it, it really does take your undivided attention because you could use the illustration of a quarterback or a point guard or pitcher, or you could use the example of an orchestra. You know, if, what if somebody is part of an orchestra and they're having a, trying to have a hands-free conversation while they're playing their instrument, you know, what do you think the effect of all of that would be? You know, I was trying to create some real life scenarios that we wouldn't imagine that it would be acceptable for it to happen there, but somehow it's okay when we're driving. I think there is a lot, I believe there is a lot of social pressure and there are two industries that want us to believe that using our phones is a safe thing. I think the majority of our population will agree that texting and driving is bad, but over 53% of those 93% are out there texting anyway. It's, it's, it's a bit hypocritical, but Bluetooth, there are two industries that want us to believe it and are spending a whole lot of money to try to make sure that people will continue to use Bluetooth. It's the automobile industry and the cell phone industry. They want us to buy their products. They want us to buy their technology enhanced vehicles. And they put all kinds of bells and whistles in them and tell us that they're safe. But the reality is they really aren't. And the National Safety Council has a lot of great information and statistics and uh, data to back that. And I think it's important people be aware that just because you have this, that, and the other in your fancy new car doesn't mean you need to use it. It doesn't mean it's safe. And so I highly encourage people before they're going to drive. I always hope when I share a story and I talk that the takeaway that people get is not, man, that was a really sad story and now I'm all bummed out. I tell our story because it's important people for people to hear the reality of what's happening to people because of these choices that drivers are making behind the wheel. But I want them to, to learn from it and have a takeaway that, that they understand, you know what, this is way too risky for myself, for everyone on the roadway. And just because my car has Bluetooth, just because my car has a button I can hit on the steering wheel to have a conversation, does that mean I should do it? Is it really that important? But honestly, it's just no phone calls or um, that you ever need to be having while you're driving. If somebody feels they have to make a call, then pull off and put your car in park. You can talk all day. That's fine. But uh, once that car is in drive, it's not about you anymore. It's about everybody else on the roadway because that's who's going to be at risk if you make those choices. So I encourage people to you know, set themselves up for success before they leave. As soon as you get in your car, 
you know what, if you need to use your GPS, I, I travel a lot. I travel all over the country, all over the world for that matter, um, sharing our story and, and, and doing these presentations distracted driving awareness. And I have to use GPS because um, I'm in a lot of foreign places that I, I need to use it. So I queue up my address ahead of time. I turn the volume up and I do my best to not try to look at any kind of a map and listen to the cues because your GPS will tell you exactly where to go. You know, if you want to listen to music, all right, you know, I'm all over that. I get that. I enjoy that too. Get your music queued up and ready to go. You can set yourself up to have a successful drive and get there safely as long as you prepare yourself ahead of time. And if you know you have somebody wanting to call you, ask them to try to give you enough, you know, hey, I have a 30-minute drive. You know, let's talk after I get where I'm going. But don't call me while I'm driving. I'm not going to answer my phone. Change your voicemail. I tell people, hey, change your voicemail. Make yourself accountable. If you call me, you're going to hear, and this has been on my phone for 12 and a half years, how you've reached Shelly. I'm either driving or I'm unavailable. Leave me a voicemail. I'll get back to you when I can. Make yourself accountable to others. I think those are some good things. Yeah, I have that message on my phone as well. So <laughs> I, I don't even worry, you know, when I, yeah. I get behind the wheel. I've, I'm not worried about answering a phone or worried about anybody who might be trying to get a hold of me. Uh, you know, I can check the messages when I, I have arrived at wherever it is I'm, I'm going to. You mentioned about doing these presentations. You know, can you give an example of an organization that you've given a presentation to and you know, maybe there's a, a special uh, memory or story attached to that presentation. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Too many. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to say. I, I'm an independent speaker. It didn't start that way. I actually started out speaking. Thanks. Rob and I got connected through another friend of ours named David Teeter. And David had lost his son. Uh, he lives in Michigan, who was 13 years old. And he worked for the National Safety Council, and I believe he's actually recently retired. At the time, he worked for the National Safety Council, and it was kind of ironic after his son was killed that he worked for them because he was kind of able to get a, a nonprofit launched thanks to the National Safety Council, and they kind of supported it. And um, he was looking for people to join him, uh, join forces with him, who had been through similar experiences. Rob Reynolds was one of them. I was one. There's several others. We had we weren't a large organization, but just because we were small didn't mean we weren't mighty. We certainly were. And that's kind of how I started speaking. And that became it was called Focus Driven Advocates for Self-Free Driving. And it was it was what opened the door for me to start getting out there and speaking. We all kind of spoke together and kind of shared the podium, I guess you could say, sharing our stories. But we we as a group were able to kind of get the ball rolling with getting statewide awareness and starting to get laws passed. There really weren't any cell phone laws at that time, back in 2008, 2009. And that's when that all kind of started for me. And honestly, I think one of my most memorable presentations was some volunteer speaking I was doing. When Focus Driven, Focus Driven only ended up lasting for about four years, and it was heartbreaking when it we realized that we weren't able to maintain, and um, several of us are still speakers of our own choosing on our own time outside of that after that all kind of um, came to an end, and I just, I told myself, I got to keep doing this, and so, uh, you know, I, I speak quite a lot, anywhere from 20 to 50 presentations a year, it just depends on who reaches out to me, and, um, you know, if we can make it work. I don't think I've ever turned anyone down, but but I, I also do um, pro bono work and speak for the local, there's a local group here, it's called the Party Program, and it stands for Prevent Alcohol-Related Trauma in Youth, and it's much more than just educating kids about alcohol, it's about teaching them about drugs and abuse and depression and distractions, distracted driving, all these things that are potentially dangerous for for our youth as they get older and start driving and start having independent lives and so for a very very long time I think about eight years I I would come and share my story with these kids you know it's interesting because Tom I mean after all these years we know we've done Oprah we had her come to our home we've done nightly news shows we've done you know national events I've done so much in the public eye because I realized if, if it's asked of me, I, you know, I, I'm not going to turn that down. It's an opportunity for thousands of people to hear our story and 
and hopefully learn from it and, and make good choices because of that, better choices. But the most impactful presentation I've ever done was for my daughter's classmates. They were coming and I didn't realize that it was her school that day. And there they were as I looked out into the audience and I'm talking to my daughter's classmates who were in fourth grade class with her and who she grew up with. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of presentations and times I've spoke, that was the most impactful for me because when I saw them, I saw her out there with them, you know, um, wishing she was there. How old were her classmates when you made this presentation? Freshmen in high school. They were 15, 15 years old. So my daughter's 22nd birthday is August 25th of this year. So 11 years. Yeah. 12 years, 12 years, 12 years. She's been gone. So at least am I doing my math right? <laughs> uh, it goes so fast, but that was out of all the stuff I've done and all of, all of the, you would think, you know, being on Oprah, my husband and I were pretty nervous and she pulled us up out of the audience and we didn't even know we were going to be on stage. That was completely unplanned. We were there with all a bunch of people from focus driven and we were, we were watching videos that some of us had, um, filmed for her a few days earlier and we were never supposed to be pulled up on stage and that was pretty crazy but and impactful for us and amazing to have her see the, the have Oprah Winfrey see the value and what we do and and the value in our children's lives and want to you know want to talk about that on her show before her show was finished but even even with all of that I would have to say that speaking in front of my daughter's classmates was the most impactful presentation for me and um, they stood up for me and they applauded and they were like, they spoke afterward. That meant the world to me. That meant the world to me that those kids stood up and said something. And um, just to say, we loved her. She was an awesome person and, and we miss her. And what you're doing is amazing. And you're honoring her. And thank you. And that's what they said to me. Are you still in touch? Or are they still in touch with you today? Some of them? I wish they were. Those two particular kids that I'm thinking of, I still know their families, but uh, I have lost touch. It's challenging for me to see them grow up. I'm happy for them, but honestly, it's, it's heartbreaking for me. It's, it's difficult. It's, I'm not going to lie. It's really hard. You share Erica's story when you do these presentations, but is there a special way that Erica is present with you as, as you go out and, and uh, do this necessary work? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I cry a lot, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, I, I never apologize for it because I love my daughter. I will always love my daughter and she's worth every tear. She always will be. How do I explain this? I feel like it's what God wants me to do. And I'm not sure when I'll be done. Um, I've been doing this a long time. And the issue of distracted driving hasn't improved, unfortunately. I don't feel like it's improved enough. I do kind of feel like COVID has definitely set us back. I think we've been on a good path of, of improvement. And the last year's is kind of, I think it's it's kind of slipped back a bit, continuing to be a, a big problem. and. I need to keep doing this as hard as it is for me. I know my daughter would be proud of me. I know, I believe she is proud of me, of my family. Over the years, you know, my, my other daughters, as they're getting older, have of their own choosing, have always done stuff to try to educate their classmates and people around them and projects that happen to be about distracted driving, which I think is awesome. But I think Erica... Erica finds a way of showing me she's with me. You know, I look for hearts. I see hearts and I find hearts everywhere. That's her thing for me is hearts. Um, Hearts, peacocks, and sunflowers and owls. Those are all very unusual things. Hearts are not. But the sunflowers, she just thought they were beautiful. Peacocks, same thing. I mean, they're so cool and unusual. She had an obsession for barn owls. In fact, when she was in fourth grade, she had tried to convince my husband and myself that we needed to have a barn owl as a pet. 
because everybody in England has them. Like we have cats and dogs where they all have barn owls. And I'm like, how would we have a barn owl in our house? And she's like, oh, we'll we'll make it work. She was just uh, enamored with barn owls. And so she was really into this book series called The Guardian of Gahul. And it's I never had read it, but my older daughter, Jessica, did. We had the whole series. They actually made a movie of it, an animated movie. And it was wonderful. We bought it, of course. And I saw it in the theater when it came out, and I know Erica would have loved it, but she was just such a, she, I loved how, how she liked different things. She didn't just, it wasn't just all the simple stuff. She liked unusual things. Like, I don't know anybody else who got a kid who was asking to have a, a barn owl as a pet. <laughs> you know, I love that about her. I love that she had uniqueness about her, and she was a lot of, she was very fun and very positive. She wanted to fix everything. She wanted people to be happy and when her friends were upset and fighting, she she would be like, Mom, I just she'd be so devastated. How can I fix this? And you know, the one thing I was talking to my my daughter, my daughter Valerie, who's now 16, uh, my youngest, that I was talking about earlier, this morning on the way to school, and I said, you know, I'm gonna be doing a podcast later today. And I've been thinking about what, what I know Tom's gonna ask me. He's gonna be asking me how it has you know Erica impacted our lives, how has she influenced us? And and what I what always pops into my head about my daughter was how positive she was. She would say, you know what, I just don't want the Sunday plain. I need to have the Sunday with the whipping cream and the nuts <laughs> and the cherry. And I want it all. I want it all, mom. I want everything. I I want to experience it all. I want to, if you're going to go full in life and go big in life, then go, go all out. That's the thing about her that I love and I miss. I, I don't know that I, I have that kind of personality, but I certainly aspire. She's, she, she inspired me in how positive and how fun and how she saw life in such a good way. And I love that about her and I miss that about her. So I think those are the things about her that I, I want to, to try to embrace for myself. And I've tried, tried to remember that about her when I, get down and when I'm speaking and I, I don't know if are people really hearing me? Are they are they really being impacted? Do they are they listening? I mean, do they get it? Do they understand this is real life? This is this is somebody's story. This is this isn't just a statistic. My daughter's not just a statistic. She was a human being that had her life taken from her. And what can we learn from what happened to her, right? And how can we make a difference um, because of her loss? So that's all the stuff that I think about. And when, when I get, when, you know, when I get up, go out there and I speak and I'm, I'm having a tough time um, afterwards, I, I sit in my car and I just, I think about, I think about all of that. And I think of, you know, I, I get this feeling from her that she is with me and that she's like, mom, you know what? If there's one person, just one in that huge room of people of several hundred people that you're talking to that gets it, then that's worth it. Right. And then I go, yep. Yep, you were right, kid. That is worth it. What have you learned about yourself over these last 12 and a half years? I shouldn't take things so dang seriously. (laughs) You know, I think it's so easy to get caught up in our own heads and um, worry about meaningless things that really don't matter stuff material things i just you know life truly is about relationships about loving the people that you're with giving your whole heart to them and not wasting time i think that's the the big thing my husband and i both really value our children we value our family and our time together we don't get caught up. I, I don't feel like we get caught up in all of that, the nonsense of it all, you know, try not to be so worried about what everybody thinks and just be the best you you could be. I think a lot of it is that. And I don't know that I would say that, you know, we were ever really caught up in trying to be anything other than who we were. But I don't know. There's something that happens to you when you go through loss like this. People ask you know, that question of how, how, how have you gotten through all of that? So many people who lose or have a child die, regardless of the reason. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. A child dying from cancer, from an accident, from suicide. It's, it's all terrible. It's all, the child is gone. Your child's gone. I mean, it's, it's awful. 
going through the loss of a child is the worst kind of loss anyone can go through. That's why there's no name for it. There is no name for it because it's the worst kind of loss that you can suffer. How do you get through it? How do you survive it? I have learned so much about grief, way more than I thought I would ever know about grief because I was struggling in the beginning to, to how to cope with it. It was, it was eating me up. It was literally eating me up. And, you know, I had one choice. Do I let myself be engulfed by this loss or do I rise above it and say, I can get through this. You know, I want to get through this. I, I want to live. I want to be here for my husband. I want to be here for my, my other two daughters. I'm always going to be a mom of three girls, always for the rest of my life. When that question's asked of me, I have three daughters. Just one of them isn't here with us anymore. She left us when she was nine and we miss her terribly. And she, but she's ever present in our every day. So, you know, it's very eye-opening when you go through something tragic like a child loss. And I truly believe with all my heart and soul that I'm here because God wants me to be here because I need to be here. And my, it's not my time yet. I've got a purpose. I've got a purpose I need to, to fulfill, which is to be the best mom I can be, the best wife I can be, and to continue to give all I can until I feel like I, I have more, no more to give when it comes to educating people about this. So that's my attitude. I'm just going to keep trucking because I, I have to, and it's what, it's what I need to do. There's not enough of us out there talking about this. And like you said, the majority of people who've been through this in this distracted driving um, world, we all know each other and we do, and we support each other. It's not the kind of thing we want. We wish on anyone to have to go through a family member, losing a family member to this. But if it happens, we can make a difference in our world by sharing our stories and supporting each other. And so that's, that's my goal and that's my mission. Well, a question that comes to mind for me, too, is, you know, who are some of the people that have been of greatest support for you and for Darren and for your uh, your family through these 12 and a half years? What's helped you navigate these years? That's a great question. I mean, definitely family and friends, our church family as well. All of them were, you know, truly there for us in the very beginning. And people going through this type of a loss. Honestly, the best possible thing that you can do for them are very simple things. And we learned that really quickly. I went into a pretty dark place. And I think, I think my husband, he had to hold the fort down. And he did. He was a rock star. He still is. Because I, uh, I went into a pretty dark place I'd never been before. And it was really, really hard. And, and I, I'm a Christian. I, I know I, God is my rock and my foundation. And he was with me in that dark place. And pulled me out of it. And I, I think it was truly just um, learning how to navigate the loss and how to cope with the grief that I was going through. You know, my faith is what pulled me through this as well as very close friends and family that did everything they could and continue to do what they can to support us and love us and, and never forget our daughter and constantly let us know that she is always going to be remembered. I really didn't know how to cope with this. And so I started talking to people that I had heard had lost a child. And that for me was probably <laughs> really truly my saving grace. I think having a network of people that knew what I was going through, not that that's, I don't want to say it's comforting, but it kind of was. Does that make sense? Well, it's uh, the way I look at it is it's, it's your experience. And if that yeah. experience brings you that comfort, it's certainly the appropriate word to, to use. Yeah, so we were in a grief support group and we were the youngest ones there because no one loses their nine-year-old and everybody else's kids were anywhere from 20 to 36 years old when they are, their children died. And so we had all these older people that were there to support us. And I think it really helped my husband and I get through that first couple of years. We met on a regular basis, all of us. It started out through a hospice as a support group and then very, you know, very brief. And then they said, well, if you guys want to keep meeting, you'll have to meet on your own because they have a whole new group of people coming in and they're going to take this time slot. We met for six years afterwards. They became like family to us. And that, that kind of comfort is, is you can't put a price tag on that. Just having people who know what kind of pain that you're in and supporting each other, you know, we would just cry together and say, what are you doing to cope? And um, we would encourage each other in finding ways to 
deal with our losses. And, they, and everybody's stories were so different. I mean, not one of us had anything similar. Every single one of us in the room. I think we started out with eight or nine couples at the hospice, at the hospice um, support group. And by the time we ended up on our own, there was only about five or six left because it's not for everybody. That's for sure. But it, it, it worked for us. It, it really did. Well, it really points to uh, our need for community as human beings, that we need to find our community. We need to find those people who are supporting us, especially, you know, navigating true tragedies that, uh, that visit us in life. And I'm heartened that you have found that. Shelly and I are friends on Facebook. And, the, you know, the word that I would use to describe you is just simply joy. <laughs> when you put a post up, you know, I, I feel, I see, I sense joy. I'm reminded of a definition of joy that was shared with me probably 25 or more years ago, that joy is suffering that has been worked through. It's more than happiness. It's more than a pleasant feeling. It's something that has a depth to it. And that depth really comes from embracing all that life brings our way and living through it. You know, to be able to discover life in, in new ways. And, uh, you know, maybe as a segue there, are there ways that you have discovered, you know, new life in the last 12 and a half years? I talk a lot. <laughs> no, that's okay. You probably didn't realize I would be monopolizing a lot of this conversation. You just made my day. You just said the sweetest thing, Tom. Thank you. You made me so happy. That was, that, nobody's ever, I've never had anybody tell me that. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I that makes me happy to hear that I'm seen that way. That is what I am trying very hard to be. Is is happy? I mean, I don't have to try very hard. It's just it's happening. My my life is good, and God is has blessed my family and blessed me. And you know, it doesn't mean every day is easy. I mean, uh, I cry a lot <laughs> because you know life's thrown us some fastballs. What do, what have I done? What how have I changed? I think I am not the person I was before we lost our daughter. I'll never be her again, and that's okay. And I really had to embrace that I'm a different person. You know, where there, there were things about me that I loved that I feel like I couldn't get back, and. I think that just happens in life. I think when, as we get older and we go through things and we experience things and, and obviously we went through a pretty tragic, awful, horrible thing that happened to us. And we had to find a way through that, right? I think one thing I have, I have learned that's very important is that if something bad happens to you, whatever it is, something has impacted your life, some tragedy of some kind. I mean, it could be, lot of things, you know, could be disease, could be loss of life, could be, you know, um, a divorce, could be you're dealing with depression, could be abuse. These are all things that people struggle with in life, maybe alcoholism, They're all things that can impact us in a very dramatic way, right? I have learned that it's important to acknowledge that something has happened in your life and it has impacted you in a traumatic way. I think it's important that acknowledging, first of all, I think is really important. And secondly, hopefully you overcome this, this whatever it is that you're, that you're struggling with, that you've been through, that you've been put through, right? And you are wanting to find a way to get through it. If you can get yourself through it and past it, hopefully past it, right? That you will learn, learn that, you know what, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to experience that again. And I... I remember one time we were sitting and we had our grief group at our home. I'm just giving this as an example because I told this to my daughter, Valerie, the other day. And hopefully, you know, I think she got it. She understood what I was trying to say. I said, I heard a really sad statistic. One of the ladies in our group said to us, you know, 97% of people who lose a child divorce. And um, 75% of the moms take their own lives within the first seven years after losing a child. And I'm thinking, okay, are you telling us this to scare us? Are you telling us this to educate us? Why are you telling us this? And what my takeaway from those, those things were is I'm going to fight that. 
that's not going to happen to me. And then it's not going to happen in my marriage. And guess what? It hasn't. And it's not going to, because I refuse to let that be my reality. Even if she's totally accurate, that scares the bejeebies out of me. I don't want that to happen. Right. I don't want that to happen to me and my family. I shared that with my daughter going, you know what? I'm glad she told me that. I'm glad she told our group that because that's always stayed with me as a reminder. I don't want to be one of those statistics. I need to fight that. I want to tell myself life is too important and too valuable and too short to let that become us. So I, I, I try to kind of apply that whole philosophy to what I do and go, you know what? You overcome the worst possible thing. So is your husband. And so has your two daughters that are still here. We've all overcome the loss of our daughter, Erica. And we're still thriving and living, even though grief is a part of our everyday life. And it's, it's a choice. It's a mindset. It's a decision that you've got to make to go, you know what? I'm, I got to get past this tragedy in my life and not let it become the focal point and not let it take me away from living. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how I think. That's kind of how I, I try to think when I am, I'm struggling, I remind myself, you know what, you're stronger than whatever you're dealing with today. And you've been through the worst and here you still are. And apparently you're coming across as somebody that's joyful. And that's a good thing. And so, you know what, every day is not great. Some days are bad and anniversaries and birthdays and right at the moment, all of, uh, all of Erica's friends, you know, are graduating from college. And that is, that's a tough one for me to swallow. And I'm happy for them all, but my heart is broken because I wish she was here doing the same thing. But I can wish all day and it's never going to come true. You know, it's not going to do me any good focusing on that. What I can do to focus on is, is be present, appreciate what I have, be grateful for that, and tell myself every single day the same thing. Be present. Be grateful, be happy, find your smile and share it with other people. That's, that's the best advice I think I can give myself and try to give others. Well, thank you. You know what our experience has been in life that uh, we might glean a lesson or two from your experience and be able to apply that in our own way, in our own lives. That would be a great takeaway, you know, from this conversation. Is there anything that you're thinking of right now that you would say, wouldn't want to complete or finish this conversation without saying this? You bet. Two things. I go down the rabbit hole of talking about grief, but I think we don't talk about it enough. And if somebody's struggling with something, I think the best, best thing you can do, don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it internal. I think it is vital to talk to a counselor, talk to a pastor at the church. If you're not comfortable with those things, that's fine. Find a friend and go for a walk. When we're struggling with grief, when we're struggling with things that are just eating us up inside, talking it out to, to a safe person, whoever you feel that might be, is the best advice I can give. And I think um, so many of us are afraid to open ourselves up to that. And I think I think we need to, to just knock that wall down and go, you know what? I'm not moving forward past the struggle that I'm having. I think that's really, really important. I think we need to talk about what we're going through. My, my best friend was telling me to journal. And I'm not much of a journaler. But a few times that I have, it felt like this is what I needed to do, right? In place of talking to somebody journaling. But I, I think talking to, to other people is, is just... You know, sometimes you need someone just to listen to and not really say anything in return. But I think it's really important and 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 in healing. It reminds me uh, a good friend of mine who has certainly endured their family has endured uh, some really challenging times in their own life because their son died suddenly and and they they didn't really have an explanation for why that happened. He had shared uh, this quote that he had borrowed from someone uh, one time, and the quote was this is our death-denying culture has life-denying consequences. 
And, and I think it really speaks to, you know, what you've shared with us about how important it is to talk about the reality of life. The reality of life is that we experience death. And, you know, how is it that we access what there is to learn about living from that experience? And, I mean, you've just shared so many examples, so much wisdom with us uh, in this conversation. So I, I want to let you say your second point now. <laughs> Don't talk and drive. You know, it is so vital for people to see the value in those few seconds of distraction. Literally, all it took was three seconds for this driver that hit my daughter. And you know what? We didn't talk about her at all. But what I can tell you is it impacted her greatly. Obviously, this was not an intentional thing. She didn't intend on hitting my my, my daughter. It was an accident, but it was 100% preventable. So it's not an accident. Accidents are not preventable. It was a crash. And I learned that. I learned that my friend David Teeter taught me that um, there is a difference between those two things. Has it impacted her life? Her one choice, her one decision? Yes. I was told she was a bubbly, happy lady. She was not, by the way, she wasn't young. She was 36. The driver was 36 that hit my daughter. She had a one and two-year-old boy and girl. We did not know her. And she worked full-time as a PT, as a physical therapist. So I was told she was this happy, bubbly lady. And afterwards that she just, you know, became reclusive and, and everything went inward. So she did not serve any jail time. Um, she had to do community service as a punishment. And I think she might have had to take a defensive driving course. So as for like her punishment, there wasn't much of one. We had empathy for her and we felt bad for her. So we didn't push for any of that. But I'm, I'm bringing her up as an example that, you know, if you don't think about the choices you make before you get in your vehicle and you think that one quick little phone call at that that red light isn't going to make that big a deal. Well, when it turns green, you're still going to go and not going to, you're not going to hang up on the person on the other end of the call. And you have no idea how far down the road, what's going to happen if you stay on that phone call or you continue texting. Our story is an example of what happens when people make that choice. And so I, I ask people to, to sign a pledge to themselves. So you can print one out. The National Safety Council has pledges. There's all kinds of websites out there that have pledges you can print out that it's a commitment pledge to yourself and to others that you're committing to driving cell phone free, not hands free, but cell phone free. Meaning once you get in your car, that phone, you turn it off, you put it in your glove box, you put it in your trunk, you make the, the decision, turn the ringer off so you're not tempted by hearing that ring. And you're going to focus on the drive and nothing more. So you can get safely from the you know point A to point B. And remember, it isn't all, it's not just about you. It's about everyone on the roadway. Driving is a privilege and we need to respect it. And we need to respect every life out there that would be impacted by our choices if they're not good choices. So make good choices. Commit to being a cell phone free driver. Remember my daughter, Erica, when you see peacocks and sun, sunflowers and owls and the, the bright life that she lived and that she still has a purpose and it's still being shown today through mama and, and what I'm doing in her honor. So that's what I'd like to say. Well, thank you uh, so much. Uh, you know, it just reminds me the the two questions I always like to come back to is uh, who do you love and who loves you? Because those are the best reasons to put the cell phone, as you mentioned, throw it in the trunk if that's what you need to do. Yep. You know, but that's the best reason to buckle up. You know, it's the best reason to observe the speed limit or even go slower in neighborhoods when you see kids out playing or riding bikes or whatever, or people just walking their dog. Whatever the behavior might be, it's the best reason to stop at stop signs, even if nobody's there, because you're thinking about who might be there, you know, who could be uh, affected. Shelly, I thank you so much for uh, sharing your story and sharing Erica with us, too. I wanted to make sure that she was at least here with us in uh, portrait form. It was nice. I've been looking at her picture that you have sitting next to you uh, this entire time, and it's awesome. I love it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I sure appreciate what you're doing to to educate people about this. It's it's too important to not uh, put your time and energy into that. Well, thank you. And thank you for sharing Erica with, with our mission as well, because I think that all the loved ones whose families have uh, shared them with us and with our mission, they really motivate me. They really drive me. You know, I've got all these posters and <laughs> in the basement of our house. And sometimes I think maybe kind of an overwhelming presence, but it's like, well, 
<laughs> you know, sometimes maybe we just be, need to be overwhelmed with their presence and let that affect, you know, how we move forward and what our mission is. So I thank you and, and I, thank, I thank Darren and uh, your daughters as well for being the people that they are to be family with you and for you as you have uh, navigated these last 12 and a half years and for all the years to come. You know, I, I, one of my favorite memories is just uh, you all joining us for the Pikes Peak weekend. I think it was, must have been 2014 or 15, but it was the last time that we went to a restaurant because you probably remember it took forever for everybody to get their food that night. And now we do all the banquets at the hotel. So we've, we've got a little more control over all of that <laughs> and everything. But it's coming back to that word joy of just seeing the joy of you all being together around that table and being family. It was something that uh, I feel like just looking at uh, you all, it just has the effect of what a wonderful thing it is to be a family. Well, I, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I love them all to pieces, so I'd do anything for them. Um, they're my world and my focal point is my family. So. Well, thank you for sharing your world with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time. <laughs>